Okay, guys, we're in Lesson 13. We're going to look at Chapter 8. We're, we're going to look at all of Chapter 8 today. There's 13 verses there. And up until this point, I'm, I'll just admit, maybe you were, you were intrigued by it. Uh, there wasn't much interaction. It was mostly lecture uh, from me because of we're dealing with the whole issue of comparing uh, the Mosaic system, the way it used to be for the Jews, with the new priesthood, and specifically talking about the whole issue of Jesus being like Melchizedek. Well, now, we're going to move away from the whole issue of Jesus being like Melchizedek. We're still going to talk about Jesus' priesthood, and we're going to talk about it in comparison to the old way, but we're going to talk more about what Jesus does for us today. Okay? So hopefully as we go through this, we'll have a little bit more interaction as you begin to understand the ministry of Christ in your life today. So so let me just stop for a moment. Let me, let me just make that emphasis. When we look at Jesus' role as the high priest and why he's able to do what he's able to do as the high priest, you need to understand that is important for you today because that's what he's doing right now for you. He's our high priest. Did you understand what I'm saying? He's doing it for you today. Okay? And I mean, last week we, we saw that he lives to make what? Intercession for you. I mean, th- that expresses a strong desire for Jesus to pray for who? You. So think about it for a moment. We know that, if you know a little bit about the New Testament, that he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, which is a place of power and authority. What do you think he's doing there? Twiddling his thumbs? Do you know what I mean? The implication is, is what he's doing there, he's functioning as our high priest, praying for you. So, okay, let me just stop for a moment. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you had a rough week this week? How many had some really sketchy things happen this week as far as uh, you know, that you just faced some difficult circumstances, you didn't know, you were discouraged, whatever. How, you know, how many of you went through that kind of thing? And then you wonder, you have kind of thoughts going through your mind wondering, does anybody care? Ever say those kind of things? Does anybody care? You don't necessarily vo- vocalize it out loud, but you're carrying it on the inside. Does anybody care? The implication is, is you've got a high priest who cares. And that Someone is praying for you. That's what we got to grab a hold of. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying? That's the implication of the priesthood now. So we're going to, again, compare it, and we're going to talk about the superior ministry of Jesus. So let's look at, um, let's look at verses 1. We're going to divide it into two sections here. Look, verses 1 to 6, the new ministry. Look at what he says here. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, but not men. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary for this one to also 
have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Okay, so let's talk about, first of all, summary. The writer wraps up his discussion concerning the issue of the priesthood of Melchizedek. I said, he said I, George, I thought you were going to mention this guy anymore. Okay? The reality is, is he mentions it simply to say, look, this whole discussion that we've had concerning the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, the reality is, is that he's going to wrap it up. He's going to say, look, this is the whole reason why we entered into this discussion. This is the whole reason why we brought this up, is to talk about who our high priest is now. That's the issue here. So the writer states that we have a high priest like Melchizedek. Now, here's what he does. The high priest is seated on, should be on, the right hand of God's throne in heaven. Our high priest, this high priest, is seated on the right hand of God's throne in heaven. Now, The language that is written here seems to portray that there's this heavenly temple upstairs, this heavenly temple or tabernacle. When you read those verses there, it seems like this high priest is ministering in the spiritual or heavenly actual thing that everything else on earth was a replica of, right? When you read that, okay? But the reality is, is that what he's talking about here is, is that he ministers in a spiritual realm where God's presence is. That's the whole point he's making here. You say, well, George, how do you know there's no temple there? Well, what does it say in Revelation? It tells us in heaven there is no, what, temple. Because why? God is there. The temple was simply the place where they went to because that's where, quote, the presence of God was. All right? The point is, is that that was a replica of what was supposed to be the significance of the heavenlies. Because in the heavenlies, God's presence is there, and the high priest, who is Jesus, ministers in his presence. That's the point here. Okay? So the point is, is that he ministers in a spiritual realm, where God's presence is. Now you say, why are you making such a big deal out of that? Well, the whole point is, is that somebody can take this and take it to an extreme exaggeration and miss the main point. What's the main point? Jesus is ministering in whose presence? God's presence. That's the point here. Okay. So let's go on here. So, he ministers in God's presence. Here's his purpose. The writer says, it's the nature of priests... To make an offering. So let me just stop for a moment. It's the nature of priests, especially Old Testament priests, to make an offering. 
the priests had to make offerings as an atonement for sin. Now, every time someone sinned, or every time the nation sinned, offerings had to be made. And, and you, based upon your income and where you are at financially, determined the type of offering that you had. So even like a poor person, maybe they couldn't afford to buy a lamb or a bull, but they had to make an offering of what? A dove, a pigeon, some sort of fowl. They had to make some sort of offering. So the priests continually ministered in the, the Old Testament, in, in the temple, making offerings for sin. It happened continually. Continually. The fires on the altar were continually going, burning animals. Why? Why did they have to continue to do that? Yeah, it wasn't good enough to make it right the first time because when they made sacrifice for your sin, if you were a Jew... The reality is, is you're going to what? Yeah, you're going to sin again, okay? So the priests were continually making offerings. That's the point here. So think about that. I mean, so think about that. I mean, the reality was, is under the old system, people had to continually make sacrifices. So therefore, it was necessary that our high priest make a sacrifice as well. Does everybody understand you're a sinner? If you don't think you are, talk to somebody in your family. They'll point it out real quick. Did you know what I'm saying? You're a sinner. You're not perfect. Sacrifice has to be made for your sin. Do you understand? And so our high priest had to make a sacrifice as well. This he did when he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. Now, the interesting thing about our high priest is he's not continually going to the cross and dying. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not continually going to the cross and dying. He's already done it once for all. He made one sacrifice for sin the perfect sacrifice for sin and took care of it. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Because the reality is, is you're going to sin this week. Does everybody know that? You're going to sin this week. Our high priest would not be a priest according to the Mosaic Law. The, the author says if he were here on earth, there would be no reason for him to be a priest. Because they're already priests. Remember now, he's writing before A.D. 70. He's writing during that time when the temple still exists. But the temple doesn't exist. But there would be no need for him because there already are priests who are making offerings. He is functioning where? In the heavenlies. Okay? That system had its own priests to offer sacrifices. So the Old Testament system had its own priests to offer sacrifices. But here's what he wants to point out, is that, you know, forget that old system, because first of all, for you and I, the old system meant nothing. Does everybody understand that? 
I mean, in fact, I get so, I hear people all the time that want to live under the law, and you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, come on, read your Bible. It was only for the Jews, and the Jews themselves said they couldn't keep it. Okay? And if you were a Gentile, you had no part in it. Ephesians chapter 2. You had no part in the old system. You were a stranger. You were far off. You were headed to, you were a child of wrath. Okay. So, the writer points out that our high priest has received a better ministry. That ministry is because he is the mediator of a better covenant. Now let's just let's go back to our discussion here. Can't think of a better covenant than what, what Jesus established, can you? Forgiveness, atonement for sin once for all. The old system, which we weren't even a part of, continual sacrifices for the sin. And let me just remind you, it was only for certain sins. There were some sins that could not be atoned for under the old system. You understand? So some people say, well, is there a sin that Jesus doesn't forgive? What's the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin, folks, is unbelief and rejection of God. Do you understand? That's the only sin that cannot be forgiven. This covenant was established on better promises. Man, if you don't understand that the salvation you have is on better promises, think about it. The old system was based upon what? You did. The new system is based upon what? Who did? Jesus did. Is it based upon you? Now, let me just stop for a moment. That is going to be the number one thing that the enemy will try to deceive you on. He wants you to think that it's all about what you do rather than what he did. Because he knows that's where you'll get defeated. Did you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so let's look. We're going to look at verses 7 through 13. Why don't we read that together? And... See what the the writer is telling us here. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, 
a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so we're going to talk about the superior covenant. The first thing I want you to notice is this. The writer states that if the first covenant was perfect, there would be no need for the second one. So here's what I want you to see what he's saying here. If the law, like you've heard, have you heard people say this? I follow the Ten Commandments. You ever heard anybody say that? Occasionally you might hear somebody say, I try to live the Beatitudes too. Okay, which is the Sermon on the Mount. The, here's the problem. If, if the Ten Commandments and, and the law of the Jews was enough, okay, if it was enough for salvation, if it was enough to get you right with God and, and for you to have acceptance with God, then there would be no need for the second. There would have been no need for Jesus to go to the cross and die for you. Did you understand what I'm saying? If the law was perfect, there would be no need for grace. This is the point the writer is making here. See, I want everybody to hold on, grasp it for a minute. Just I want everybody to let it sink in. Because so many of us, you look at yourself and your relationship with God based upon what you what? Do. Do you understand what I'm saying? You look at it based upon what you do. Are you doing your devotions? Oh, you know what? I read some guy and he said I need to have family devotions every night. Or I read this guy and so and so was on focus on the family and he said this. Okay? And 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 and, and so and so says I need to be given this amount of money. Okay? I need to be giving my tithe that's attached because it said that in the Old Testament. And I need to be doing, I need to be serving. I need to be volunteering. You need you need help on Wednesday night? I'll help in all three positions at one time. Because I want acceptance with God. We're so used to being told what to do. So when you don't do it, how do you feel? Defeated is what uh, Sue says. Everybody recognize that answer? Less than, not accepted. That's just the religious acts. What if you mess up in life? How are you feeling? How are you feeling? Let's be honest. How are you feeling? You went down a road you never thought you would go. How are you feeling? Huh? Worthless, guilty, shamed. Okay? Now, here's the problem. We're measuring ourselves based upon a what? Law. The writer's trying to tell us if it was that perfect, there would be no need for the second covenant. There would be no need for who? For Jesus. Did you you understand what he's saying here? There would be no need for Jesus. Now, notice the next point he makes here. Because the first covenant had problems... And it had problems. The Lord promised a second covenant. What kind of problems did it have, George? Well, we're going to see here in a moment that it didn't cover everything. 
Here's the other problem. This is really real to you and I. You weren't included in it. Because you're a Gentile. And as a Gentile, your lot in life, your destiny was already written in stone. Well, not stone, but definitely written down. You're going to hell. Because you were not part of the promises. You were not part of the assurance of what was to come. So, I mean, uh, how many of you would say that's a problem? (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? The Old Covenant had a problem, didn't it? And even for those that it was for, it had a problem. And I'll explain that in a moment here. So what he's saying here is the New Covenant is not like the one that he established with Israel. So the New Covenant was not like the one that he established with Israel. What do you mean it was not like the one that he established with Israel, George? Well, if you go and read through the first five books, which is known as the Pentateuch, and you look at the law, you'll notice that the blessings of the law were contingent upon you, or the Jew, and how they responded, how the nation responded. So if the nation turned from God, they were then what? Cursed. Punished. But if they did what was right, they were what? Blessed. So the whole covenant and the basis of the covenant and and the blessing of the covenant was based upon what? You did. Or what they did. Because again, you weren't included in that. The new covenant is completely different. Why? Because the new covenant has nothing to do with who? Well, it has everything to do with Jesus, but it has nothing to do with who? Us. It's not based upon how well you did that day. Did you know what I'm saying? Man, think about how, think about how we look at things, when we talk about the things of God and our relationship with Him, we look at things so much from a human standpoint. Do you know what I'm saying? Think about how much we look at it from a human standpoint. How many of you have been in the doghouse with your spouse? You don't have to. (laughs) No, but you have been, right? How many of you have been in the doghouse? When you've done something, you've been in the doghouse, right? Okay? And and, and you're in the doghouse for what reason? Because you were nice? Because you were perfect? No, you did something dumb, right? You messed up. And so that affected the what? The relationship. we got to quit looking at our relationship with God from the same standpoint. You are not in the doghouse with God. Maybe you want to write that one down. You are not going to be in the doghouse with God. You need to write that down. You are not going to be in the doghouse with God. Yeah, but you're not going to be in the doghouse. Now, you may be disciplined, but that's a different thing than the relationship being cut off. Okay. That is a different thing than him adjusting his attitude towards you. The relationship is affected, but what I'm talking about is you living in a doghouse where you think, man, like have you ever been in a doghouse with your spouse and it took a while to get back in good graces? That happens. That happens. 
And sometimes when you're in the midst of it, it's like, am I ever going to overcome this? Those are human relationships. We can't view the relationship with God the same way. You can't. Because the fact of the matter is, is God already knows from the beginning that you're going to what? Sin. You're going to do wrong. You're going to do wrong. So his acceptance of you has nothing to do with you. Man, when are we going to, when are we going to own that? When are we going to realize that and let that be expressed in truly loving him? Do you know what I'm saying? Truly loving him. So he goes on here. It was not like the one that he established with Israel. This is because Israel chose not to continue in the covenant. They ignored it. I mean, the hist- when you read through the Old Testament, they just flat out didn't do it. They chose to ignore it. So, here's what I want you to see. The nature of the new covenant. This is where, this is where it is. First of all, it's within us. Notice this. The new covenant is established within the hearts of those who believe. How do you know you're a Christian? It's not because somebody told you you are. All right, so let me just stop for a moment. If you're here and you're telling me you're a Christian because your grandma told you when you prayed a prayer at five you're a Christian, and that's what you're basing it on is because your grandma told you, you've got problems. Seriously. Because all you're doing is you're resting on what somebody told you. Can I tell you right off the bat, they don't know. Are you talking about my grandmama? No, she doesn't know. Do do you understand what I'm saying? She doesn't know. How do you know she doesn't know? You ever watch her get in a fight with Grandpa? Because he did something she didn't figure on? She doesn't know everything, and she doesn't know your heart. You and I can't even tell you. Listen, I'm a pastor. I can't even tell you you're not saved. Or you're saved. Do you understand that? That is the witness of God's Holy Spirit to your heart when you placed your complete trust and faith in Him. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you understand who He is and you commit to follow Him, you can't, I can't tell you, oh yeah, you're it. You're okay, man. Yeah, you're okay. No. So what does that got to do with what we're talking about here, George? He says the new covenant, this being accepted for where you're at because of what Jesus has done for you, that covenant of salvation was established in your heart. In your heart. It begins there. Now he goes a little bit further because we're going we're to expand upon this. The New Covenant does not require instructions concerning the nature of God. If you truly commit your life to follow Jesus, I believe this wholeheartedly, you don't need to go to Sunday school to understand who God is. 
Why? Because you're given, according to the scripture, a new mind. Your eyes are open to understanding. I remember when I made my commitment to follow Jesus in April of 1985. Everything opened up. And it wasn't because I went to church. It was because I opened his word and it began to make, make sense to me. Did you understand what I'm saying? And I prayed. I began to have an awareness and an understanding. Where did that come from? That comes from the Holy Spirit. Because what happens the moment you get saved, folks? The moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What happens at that moment? Who enters into your life? Holy Spirit. Guess who's helping you? He's the one who's telling you you're a believer. He's the one who's telling you who God is and guiding you and giving you understanding. So the new covenant doesn't require, see, what? It, and I like the way he says that the new covenant doesn't require you saying to your neighbor or your brother, know the Lord. You, I don't, you don't need to have, you don't, the new covenant doesn't come and say to you, hey, you better get on theology. No, you begin to have an understanding. You begin to see things differently. Do you know what I'm saying? You begin to see things differently. He goes on, those who believe will have an intimate knowledge of God. Now, what does that mean, George? All right, let's stop. Does everybody recognize we do not live in a Christian nation? Okay? It is a secular nation where Christianity is predominant and it has influenced our culture. But most Americans do not believe in or do not go, well, they don't believe in your God. They believe in a God, but it's not your God. And they don't, most Americans don't go to church. How many have I told you, I mean, in the last census, only 40% of Clearfield County goes to church? That's 60% who don't. So six out of ten people you're going to meet don't go to church. Of the 40%, 40% of them are Catholic. The other 40% are Methodist. The point of the matter is, is that most of our world does not go to church. So, so okay, can we, can we quit being appalled at what we're seeing happening to our culture? Like, all of a sudden, America's turning its back on God. America's been turning its back on God. Okay? Just realize that. All right? So, having said that, when you're at work, and you hear somebody say something about God, pay attention to what they say, because it's going to reveal their understanding of God. Why? Because typically, like we see here, people say, God bless America. God is this abstract, somewhere out there being who should make sure my life is wonderful and hunky-dory. And then when it doesn't go right, I can say, why did he let that happen? If you listen to him, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You hear what I'm saying? That's the concept of God that's out there. It's just this abstract whatever. Here's what the writer is saying to you who have experienced the new covenant. You have an intimate knowledge of God. You know Him personally. Not just a personal knowledge, 
but you've experienced him in your life, guiding you, speaking to you, protecting you. You, yeah, you can testify to that, yeah? You know what I'm talking about? In fact, when you talk about your God with these other people who talk about God, but their God is this abstract thing, have you noticed they don't have a clue what you're talking about? In fact, here's how they describe Well, you must be pretty religious. You must be pretty religious. Because they don't, that's not their concept of God. The new covenant, to those who believe, they have, they have an intimate knowledge of God. That's the superior covenant. What, oh, there it is. So the new covenant will bring forgiveness for sin and lawlessness. The new covenant will bring forgiveness of sin and lawlessness. We're going to see this next week when we get into uh, chapter 9. The, the high priest, when he would go in once a year, he would make an offering for his sin and for the sin of the people. But it was only for sins committed in ignorance. So everybody understand, we do do wrong ignorantly, right? Okay? What about the ones that we do intentionally? Do you guys sin intentionally? Do you sin intentionally? Everybody should be saying, yeah. Okay? So let's, on a count of three, do we sin intentionally? Some of you are half-hearted about it. You don't want to admit it. Do we sin intentionally? Yes. Okay. Here's the problem. The old system didn't do anything about that. You were stuck. But can I remind you something? You were Gentiles, so you were stuck, period. You were stuck, period. The new covenant brings forgiveness for your sins and your lawlessness. Everything. Everything. Well, what about no, everything? Everything. Everything. That's awesome, isn't it? And and if you put it back together, it has nothing to do with who? You. It has everything to do with what? Jesus dying on the cross. Now, can we own that? Can we rest in that? So the new covenant will bring forgiveness for sin and lawlessness. The old covenant became obsolete and is vanishing away because of the new. Yeah, right. They better. Which would you want to live under? Okay, how many of you want to live under the old one that you had no part in and you were headed to hell? How many want to live under that one? Raise your hands. Look around, people. If somebody raises their hands, we're going to have to talk to them. How many of you want the new covenant? Yes, right? Do you understand what the writer's doing? Remember now, he's addressing people who are thinking about giving it in because life's tough, they're going through persecution, and they thought, well, you know, if we only go back to the old system, everything will be okay. If we, we only listen to these Judaizers who are telling us that we've got to listen to the do, perform the law. Jesus is not sufficient. 
the writer comes along and he says, look, let me tell you about the old system. The old system, this is what the old system couldn't do. But let me tell you what the new system, the new covenant does, and it has nothing to do with you. Why would you turn your back on that? Why would you turn your back on that? All right, guys.